0: Welcome to the Upon This Rock podcast. I am your host, Max Thomas. Okay, today we are starting a new series that should only be mildly controversial. I'm calling it the Inigo Montoyas words that you keep using that I don't think they mean what you think they mean. That's a reference to the Princess Bride. If you didn't know, that's great movie from the 80s that was required in my household growing up and is still required in my household to this day to be a member of my family or to be my friend. So if you haven't seen it, you should probably go see it and and uh, it's all-time great quotable movie from the 80s. But these are words uh, in this series. These are going to be words that, uh, theological words, biblical words, that get used often in church vernacular, But I think they mean something other than how we typically think of them. Or, put it this way, I think we misuse them or misappropriate them uh, or misdefine them um, in in various different ways. And so, I thought we would start off uh, in the deep end because, again, this should only be mildly controversial in some ways to some people. and it, It doesn't have to be, by the way. Uh, I thought we would start with the word hell, H-E, double hockey sticks. And to do that, uh, I had a chance to interview Brad Jerzak. Brad is the author of a book called Her Gates Will Never Be Shut, uh, which is on the topic of hell. Also author of a book uh, that is on my you know top 10 probably books that I've ever read list called A More Christ Like God. Also touches on, he touches on some of these ideas in that book as well. Um, but so Brad wrote, I, I, it's the best book on Hill that I've ever written, um, on a number of different levels. And so I thought it'd be a, a good opportunity to, to talk to Brad. He's been, you know, unbeknownst to him, obviously just mainly through his writing and through, uh, listening to things that he's put out there, watching things that he's put out there. Uh, he's been hugely influential in my own journey in my own understanding and, as i wrestled through some of these topics and he was kind enough to to come on the pod and so uh what you're going to hear next is a conversation that i had with brad jerzak on hell but before that i thought we needed some special intro music for this series and so on the other side of our special intro music you'll hear me talking to brad jerzak he
1: didn't fall inconceivable you keep using the word. I don't think it means
0: what you think it means. My God. Uh, Brad Jerzak, thank you for coming on uh, upon this rock, upon the podcast. Uh, it's good to have you.
1: My pleasure. Glad to meet you. Yeah, and
0: this is... Uh, we're just talking a little bit before we hopped on about uh, the movie The Princess Bride. Uh, one yes. of my favorite movies. is initiation into at least my family and if you want to be my friend you need to go watch that movie my wife actually does not like that movie which inconceivable inconceivable right yeah absolutely it's just it's so quotable it's amazing but there's a scene in that movie uh where what one of the characters if you've not seen the movie continues to use this word inconceivable and after about the fourth or fifth time somebody says, you keep using that word, but I don't think it means what you think it means. And so uh, here we are in our current series on the, on the pod. We are talking about words that you use that I don't think they mean exactly what you think that they mean. And I thought a good place to start that conversation would, you know, just jump into the the deep end of the lake of fire uh, and and talk about hell. And, um, and so, Brad, you've written an incredible book on hell. What 10 uh, how old is that book now 10 years
1: yeah it could even be 11 now
0: 11 okay uh called her gates will be never her gates will never be shut referencing a really kind of wild passage in revelation where if you just read it at face value and just do a kind of chronological assessment of where you are in the story it, it opens up a whole lot of uh it, it just opens a can of worms of why why is there? Why does the city have a gate and it's not shut, and people can come into the city after everybody's apparently in the lake of fire? And um, it, it was uh, it was actually through your through that book that um, uh, through your book that that I started to kind of wrestle through uh, some of this um, some of these topics and and conversations. So I thought I'd have you have you on and, and we can chat about it. So let let's start here. Um, hell. Is there a more loaded word in American or you could even just say Western evangelicalism, Protestantism? Is there, is there a more loaded word than hell? Like a more densely packed baggage filled word than hell.
1: I can't think of any. No, I I can't. Let's go with that one for now anyway.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think there's a where, and there's a bunch of different ways you probably could, we could go off of this, but, where Let's start with where are we wrong on the word hell? Where, where are the, the foundational mistakes in how we conceive of hell when, when that word is used? Or probably even more importantly, when we read H-E double hockey sticks in, in the Bible, when we read that word in the scriptures and all these images come flooding to our mind, where are our first few mistakes?
1: I think the big mistake is conflating the many diverse and even conflicting images of uh, divine judgment into one image and then totalizing that image. For example, in Malachi 3, you've got divine judgment in back-to-back phrases pictured as a refiner's fire and as launderer's soap. So we've got a fire there, and we've got a soap there, and the thing they have in common is about cleansing. Well, somehow, that completely goes off our radar. So, in other words, we've excluded so many of the other images that are important to our understanding of divine judgment as restorative, for example, and we've packed them into one or two pictures that we get um, from the Bible, but what I mean by totalize then. So we conflate and we totalize. So we think of hell is this one thing I picture And it's the one thing I picture is actually a lake of fire. And now the lake of fire, which uh, it appears one time in the Bible, you know ends up ends up becoming our entire vision of what we hear and see in our minds when we think about hell. And then even even the way that um, Revelation 20 and 21, you've got the lake of fire in chapter 20, as if there's nothing else in the Bible afterwards. There's two more chapters where the same people listed in the lake of fire are now outside the city. Okay, so we can think about divine judgment with the lake of fire, but we can also think of it as being outside the city. Then also, I think connected to that error is um using one passage or a few passages to say this is a permanent state from which there's no return, when in the very next chapter, we've got uh, right. open gates and an invitation to return. So we created such a small vision of it and then made that the whole thing. I think that's a big mistake.
0: Where did that Where did that where does that come from? Because I agree with you the, the on an earlier episode of this uh, of this podcast, I actually interviewed Chris Green, whom, whom we both know, and he he talked about the the great sin of evangelicalism is reductionism is exactly what you're saying is reducing these these ideas in scriptures and images all the way down to their lowest common denominator and then watering it down into I think he talked about I think like watery soup essentially um, where did where did that come from when we talk about when we talk about hell.
1: Well, I imagine it has something to do with our impulse <laughs> toward um, inclusion and exclusion. So I'm in, and my enemy is out, and out means hell, and in means heaven. And I presume, I presume that the enemy is out. And then I would add to that the rhetorical use of it um, to addressing misbehavior. And I actually think Jesus does that himself. In other words, when Jesus talks about divine judgment, he's not creating a theology of hell for us at all. He's tr- describing uh, uh, the seriousness and, and the destruction that comes from turning away and misusing the other. And so he, Christ himself is comfortable using um, pretty intense imagery for that purpose. It's not eschatological at all it's ethical
0: Hmm. so
1: in other words how do you measure how bad it is how wicked it is to turn away the hungry and the naked and the slave and the sick how bad is it well you might describe how bad it is using hell imagery and so it doesn't it's not a story about how this all ends up or even people's eternal destinies Um, it would be like me raising my voice at my children to let them know that disrespecting their mom is much worse than, um, you know, leaving the door unlocked at night or something. Right. I, so I'm going to use more intense language. Well, the early church picked up on this and then they started gleeing in it. (laughs) And I think it became a real, it was about controlling people. And so you move, you move into this language of, what is the most ma- motivating thing I can do for you to get you to turn from sin and come to God? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you about the worst possible image of that. But then they turned it into a theology and they turned it into a weapon. Yeah. So I know you've talked about this weaponizing the language.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, and I want to get there in, in a second. What, but first, what are, and there's been tons of work done on this but I think it would be helpful for people that this is new to, I mean, this was, this whole idea was new to me just four years ago, five years ago. Um, I mean, I was, I was already pastoring at this point. Um, The idea that there's actually, when we read the word hell in, in the scriptures, old and new Testament, there are actually different words being used in the Hebrew and in the Greek that have, that mean I mean just quite literally very different things but we for whatever reason I have maybe you know this I don't I have no idea why we translators still to this day translate them all as hell that makes complete completely no sense to me Um, but what are some of those images um, or what are some of those words I put it that way uh, that we see and what are the images kind of related to those words, maybe walk us through just briefly those. And then I want to talk about, okay, how do we, uh, how do we kind of trace those through the scripture? And then, and then we can get to the conversation of, of how we've come to, I think, uh, reduce those down and, and weaponize them.
1: Okay. Yeah. So if I could distill what you've just asked me into a proposal, I want to propose this, that there are diverse images and words concerning divine judgment that it is helpful to distinguish for some reasons and also helpful to conflate for some reasons and so we'll look at that so in terms of um, of the images themselves you do have a range that includes fire soap outer darkness You have the language of exclusion. You are cast out and sent away. At other times, it's just the opposite, that whatever we've called hell is not about a place separate from God, but that it is God himself. That is, God is the fire, and hell is not another place you go to away from God. It is in some passages, but in the text I'm thinking of, Uh, God himself is the fire and it is heavenly to experience divine love from an orientation of love, but it's hellish if you hate love. And in hating love, we are exposing our false selves, the chains of our religion, the chains of our addiction, egoism, all of these internal things that are a bondage. They come into the furnace of God himself and the love consumes them. So that's already two very different images, isn't it? One is away from God in punishment. The other one is toward God in refinement. Are you thinking and that's of, just the fire language.
0: Are you thinking of <laughs> 1 Corinthians 3 by any chance? That would
1: be that would be one example that yeah. we all pass through the through fire. The fire. Yeah. Um, and what is burned up in 1 Corinthians 3 is the wood, hay, and stubble of false motives. It's not you. And in, in fact, he says, you know, some are going to come through the fire and there'll be nothing left but them. So they're not consumed. Right. It's all their garbage. Similarly, end of Mark chapter nine, Jesus is actually saying, "Look, if you have, if you have, if your eye causes you to stumble, poke it out. It's better to enter the kingdom of heaven with one eye than into the fires of Gehenna that we translated hell with two eyes. It's better to cut off your hand and come into the kingdom of heaven with one hand instead of the fires of Gehenna with two. But that so." Already there, he is sort of conceding to our image of an afterlife punishment of our sins. But then the very next line, he flips the whole image on its head. He's not saying that the fires of Gehenna are this afterlife punishment for those sins. The very next line, he says, for you will all be salted with fire. In other words, no, it's not you thought the wicked go there and the righteous go to the kingdom of heaven. No, no, no. We'll all be salted with fire. And then he says, but salt is good. So now it's not punishment. It's restoration and refinement. And then he says, so make sure, oh, so I can do it intentionally. I can receive the fire that is good and salts me into make sure you have salt in this salting of fire in yourselves. So now you internalize it. So it's not, so he's just in two verses, he shifted Gehenna from a fireplace place where the wicked go to a blazing fire of, of a purification that I can embrace into my heart now in this life. And that everyone, and, that everyone goes through. Yes, everyone. No one. So this is bad news for Christians who think they're just off the hook. <laughs> I mean, so will you pass through the fire? Absolutely but it's the fire of the glory of the love of Jesus Christ. And will it be unpleasant? Absolutely. To the degree, the precise degree that you cling to your worldly attachments, to your egoism, to your regrets. to And so the, the thing is, so let go, just let go. And um, that would be one example. Um, and that's just the fire language, right? And, right, right. In our liturgy, we even think about it as being the the three boys who go into the fiery furnace, along with the fourth figure, the Son of God is in there with us, and what burns up? What burns up is our chains. What burns up is the ropes that were binding us, and then we come through it. But it's kind of wrathy in the sense that God is thorough in that the fire of his love will not W- will not leave anything not real in you it's got to go and if you're clinging to that what's not real, um yeah it's a trial by fire but it's the fire of love so that has that is a that is a serious theme through the scriptures
0: yeah yeah um but there's so many so many places i want to go right now but um
1: So we didn't even get to the words yet, but we can do that when you want to.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, let's stick it. it. I mean, when we talk about hell, I mean, most people conceive of it as the the afterlife for the wicked. And it's this place of eternal conscious torment. And you're talking about an, an entirely different uh reality that even if it is maybe somewhere where people go there's there's this maybe this internal reality mark 9 first corinthians 3 but even if it, it's some kind of place that people go that it's restorative and cleansing it's to use the malachi language a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap which ironically is used with water so you have a fire language and water language in in the same same verse but that's not at all i mean what most people think of when they think about hell hell is about it's about punishment it's about retribution not about restoration and cleansing and purification where do we see some more of that kind of language where i mean we've talked about some already but tease that out for us a little bit more because that i remember when i first encountered that idea it really kind of started to make my head hurt and spin because it, it flips even the purpose of hell on its head that, that hell was for me always the, I mean, it was always the ace up our sleeve toward to the wicked that if you don't, you know, it's turn or burn. I mean, it's the famous Spurgeon, uh, um, sermon turn. I mean, literally titled turn or burn. Um, that it's, it's there's going to be this place of just weeping and gnashing of teeth and and punishment. Um, that hell is somehow, this is a little crude, but I think it really is how most people think about it, that hell is the torture chamber in the basement of heaven that God sneaks down in the middle of the night to keep everything going. Um, but you're talking about it in, in a completely, completely different way.
1: Yeah. Um, even if you take a classic case like Matthew 25, the judgment of sheep and goats, This is a very difficult passage because it's many of our English translations say that the goats go off into eternal punishment prepared for Satan and his angels and all of that. And we just read eternal punishment there. See it's punishment and see it's eternal, but already by the end of the second century. So we're talking, you know, maybe a hundred years after John finished the book of revelation, maybe 110, we've got Clement of Alexandria, who is the head of the biggest seminary in the world? It's the catechetical school in Alexandria, Egypt, and he's running this place. And he actually goes into that passage, and Greek, remember, is his first language, so he knows what he's talking about. And he's only a you know a century away from the New Testament documents themselves. And he says in that passage, you have to understand that um, the word that we've translated punishment. Uh, is Colossus in Greek, and Colossus is not retribution. We have a Greek word for retribution. He says it's Timoria, but what G- the author of Matthew, um, Jesus would have been speaking in Aramaic, but the author of Matthew uh, uses Colossus and Colossus is generally about correction in that era, correction, not retribution, but and then. And even the word he says this word, you know, in English we've translated it eternal, but it's ionion. It's to do with the age, and ionion is not eternity. God, only God is eternal. Uh, ionion is is the coming age, the age to come. And so here's how some today might translate that: that the goats will go off into the corrective judgment of the age to come. Um, so there's debate about that, but even in this end of the second century, the fact that Clement had to explain that means there was already debate about it. Right. Right. And that's, that's the other thing is in the early church, they did not come down on, on one point of view and make it a dogma. Even by the time you get to the Nicene Creed, there is no doctrine of hell that you have to believe. The only thing there is that there is going to be a judgment and we expect a resurrection and the life of the age to come, period. Amen, period. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So to impose a doctrine of hell is actually heretical because it's not in the dogma of the creeds. There's freedom you, you to said, think— you
0: said, uh, you said it. I didn't.
1: <laughs> I did. I'm not saying that— the uh, that. Um. Hell is a you know is the heresy. I'm saying to impose any doctrine, right. including right. universalism. Right. It, it's just not dogma, it's a debate. And you're allowed to have the debate. You're allowed to have convictions. You can even share your convictions. But when you baptize someone and they need to cite the creed, they do this is not an essential of the faith. Right. So that would be another error, making it an essential of the faith.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but Gregory of Nyssa who was like on the on the or like oversaw the the kind of the composition of of the nicene creed he was a uh christian universalist yeah
1: full on yeah he was yeah yeah. he was not the chair but he was the final editor
0: okay yeah so 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 you have a the guy who was the final editor of kind of the the boundary lines of christian doctrine that have been held for almost two in century the, now who, yeah. who held a position that now most of us would actually call, most people would actually call heretical, you know?
1: Well, most pe- most sectarians would, I guess, yeah, maybe yeah, even, sure. even most Christians, but yeah, certainly, yeah. you know, he's also most called the, most Christians in America,
0: most Christians in America.
1: Yeah. Right. And so he's actually called at one of the great church councils, we call them the ecumenical councils where all the churches said, Yes. At one of those councils, they call him the flower of orthodoxy and the father of the fathers. So, for us to call him heretic is just like an art critic telling us Michelangelo is a is a bad painter. It's no, no good. It's yeah. a self indictment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Um, so l- l- let's quick go through what what are the what are the couple of words that get used uh, in the scriptures that are translated to hell, and what's the what's the difference in And why is that important for us to even be aware of as uh, Christians who read their Bible?
1: Okay. Yeah. Like if, so the, if we're going to do the point of distinguishing them for precision, okay, here's what we've got in the old Testament. They weren't talking, they weren't thinking about a resurrection to eternal life or eternal damnation. They didn't think that way. Um, They thought about death. And when they thought about death, they did have a, they did have a, word for that and it was Sheol. So a lot of modern translations translate the Hebrew word Sheol as the grave. But the Psalms also poetically describe Sheol in a variety of images that usually it's a dark and gloomy place. In some it treats them as unconscious, some it treats it as conscious. You've got David who's saying don't abandon me to Sheol. So he's praying for a rescue either from actually dying when he's on the run from Saul, or maybe, maybe prophetically, he's getting whiffs of resurrection. So it's it is it does seem to be the afterlife existence of those who are dead, whatever that means. When you get to uh, the Greek New Testament, they want to find a word that would be similar to Sheol in Greek, and so they actually borrow a word from from Greek mythology, which is Hades. And that shifts things already because in Greek mythology, Hades was the God of the underworld. And also Hades was the place of the underworld. And there you do get a conscious torment in flames.
0: So there's baggage, so my, there's there's imagery that comes along with that word. Yeah. But it's not impo- from the Hebrew scriptures. It's from Greek mythology.
1: Yeah. and But the Jews are okay with that. Sure. And in fact, in fact... Um, it, it does enter Jew, the Jewish mind even before the, uh, the time of Christ in the intertestamental period. They start thinking more and more about retributive judgment in, in terms of fiery flames. so And they've picked up some of that from Zoroastrian, God of fire, you know, and Babylon. And they're very uh, syncretistic in that way. And, and, and I don't want to just say that a critique of that. I'm like, they also got resurrection from there so what if god is opening up their mind to new ideas from other faiths to include incorporate so that's where you get hades so the idea is um and and parallel then to it would be paradise so hades and paradise seem to be um the afterlife now prior to the final judgment final judgment right so so you have hades um let's say the rich man in the story of rich man and lazarus he goes to hades um the La- lazarus goes to the bosom of abraham or paradise and so it's it, you've got two regions of the under the geography of the underworld so to speak
0: it's a whole cosmology in and of itself so uh, here's an interesting question that honestly i've not thought a whole or studied a whole ton in the old testament in particular So they had this word Sheol for the grave or, or the dead, and it had all kinds of images associated with it. Was it, was it always negative? Did they have, did the Hebrew authors, did they have an idea for what we would now call heaven, a good place where people go to be with Yahweh when they die? Or is that not in their frame of thought at all?
1: Well, it seems like they are expecting to be delivered from there somehow um there must be a backstory to the bosom of Abraham sure there seems to be some kind of a hope and rest a, a restoration to paradise whatever that means um it it's just what I want to resist is the idea that there's a Jewish idea <laughs> sure, there's sure, not sure. there are many Jewish ideas, ideas. Yeah, yeah yeah
0: no for sure yeah
1: um, across many era, eras, and and they and they drift right, and so the, the one thing I want to say about maybe I'll say about Hades right now, and we can come back to it later, is when Jesus tells us the parable of the rich men in Hades, he again is borrowing their imagery. But Christians have no business reading that without reference to his conquest of Hades at the death and resurrection. We, at, we start talking about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus as, the, as if that's how it is. No, it's not how it is. How it is is that Christ died, enters Hades, destroyed Hades, and then it emptied it and then came back. And this is what the Apostles' Creed means by he died descended into hell and rose from the dead and there they actually use the latin inferno so it is the, their hell language not sure. even hades but it's just like i i i want to challenge anybody who comes at us with the parable of the rich man and lazarus and just with do you not believe jesus christ died and rose from the dead what why on earth would you be talking about hades as if he didn't because yeah, when yeah. he did, when he did, the historic church talks about that as the harrowing of Hades. He goes through with a rake and pulls out all the dead with him. You know,
0: I mean a couple things, yeah. I mean, a couple of things come to mind that I think again, you hit on earlier, we we are so selective, especially yep. in American and Western evangelicalism. We're so selective. So a couple of things come to my mind that immediately I think complicate our normal idea and and back up what you're saying one is is paul already you know 20 30 years after after the resurrection is using language of he descended and then he ascended and took captivity captive with him so he's already using this cosmic victory language of christ but it's not it's not just victory over you know, the powers in some nebulous sense, it's, it's descending and then leading those people that are down there in what we would call hell or captivity and leading not just them out, but captivity itself. He's, he undoes all of captivity. Um, And then you get this weird story in Matthew where after Jesus resurrects from the dead, like real bodies, start popping up all over Jerusalem and start walking around. And it's it's like the weirdest story in, I think, maybe all of the New Testament. But you have, you have Jesus resurrects and actual people come up with him as if to say those that were in captivity to death are being brought up as well. Um, and then you get early on in, in the church when they start doing icons, and you know this better than me because i come from a tradition that if i use the word icon most people don't even know what i'm talking about um but in the icon of the harrowing of hell jesus is opening the grave for adam and eve and he's leading the the idea is he's he's opening hell and emptying it of all humanity he's bringing all of humanity out of out of hell Um, again, whatever we want to even mean by that, but that's, that's the image. That's the icon is that Adam and Eve are being brought up. So there's, we are, we are, I think, brutally selective to our own, to our own detriment.
1: Right. Yeah. Our, our theology, our theology forgot that Jesus has already won, you know, that, and, and it's not just about the afterlife. That's, it's the gospel itself. And this is, I want to shift a little bit and say yeah, yeah. like, well, okay here. So from the Paschal homily of St. John Chrysostom, which is read every year at Easter in the Orthodox church, every year since he wrote it, because it was so anointed, listen to how, listen to the conquest language of what Christ has done to Hades. Um, it goes, I'll just read you two paragraphs. Yeah, enjoy yeah. ye, enjoy ye all the feast of faith receive ye all the riches of loving kindness let no one bewail his poverty for the universal kingdom has been revealed let no one weep for his iniquities for pardon has shone forth from the grave let no one fear death for the savior's death has set us free he that had was held prisoner of it has annihilated it in other words jesus was taken prisoner by Hades, and then he annihilates Hades. He blows it up from the inside. By descending into hell, he made hell captive. He embittered it. That means gave it a stomachache so that it throws him up. He embittered it when he, when it tasted of his flesh. And Isaiah, foretelling this, cried out, hell said he was embittered when it encountered thee in the lower regions. It was embittered for it was abolished. It was embittered for it was mocked. It was embittered for it was slain. It was embittered for it was overthrown. It was embittered for it was fettered in chains. It took a body and met God face to face. It took earth and encountered heaven. It took that which was seen and fell upon the unseen. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? Christ is risen, and you are overthrown. Christ is risen, and the demons fall. Christ is risen, and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen, and life reigns. Christ is risen, and not one dead remains in the grave. For Christ, being risen from the dead, has become the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. To him be glory and dominion unto ages of ages. Amen. Now, Here's the thing about that. He's not just talking about the afterlife. He's no. talking about the reign of death, even in this life. I'm already rescued from it. Right, right. I've right. already come out of my perishing into eternal life now. It's not, not but, but when I die. That death is dead. Death died. It's right. not a destination anymore. It's a birth canal. Yeah, yeah. But but um I think this is where John the Apostle is so important in the Jesus of John 3. He's like, I'm not coming to threaten you with hell. You're already in it. Watch the news tonight. Good Lord, you're perishing. I've come, that's what I've come to rescue you from. And eternal life isn't heaven when you die, it's knowing me now. Yeah, yeah. So John 10 this 10 is 10. our gospel. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And
0: I think this is, a, a, a I think, a, such an important part of the conversation is one of, again, one of those reductions that we've made is we have made hell purely this afterlife kind of business and Jesus to borrow a quote from someone that we both know you much better than I obviously, but, but pastor Brian's on that we've made Jesus and the gospel, just the minister of afterlife affairs, right? That he's, that the gospel is just get me out of that place and into the good place. And that, I mean, that misses, I mean, that misses, I think, the New Testament witness almost entirely, almost entirely. Um, Because if you, I mean, you know this, if you read through the book of Acts and read through all of the sermons, no one mentions hell and no one mentions an afterlife place called heaven. They mention resurrection. um, They mention Christ uh, conquering death, but they they don't mention, you know, repent so that you... You know, don't have to go to hell, and you can go to heaven. They say, repent so that times of refreshing can come in the restoration of all things. It's 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 a cosmic resurrection akin to Jesus's own resurrection. Um, it, and we, I think, we have we've missed the boat entirely uh, when we talk about hell. It becomes this just this weapon to, uh, ironically, you know, the thing that Jesus has overcome is the thing that we for some reason want to pick up and hit people over the head with it's like well wait hold on this is the thing that jesus has overcome
1: yeah yeah let let me say two things about that so first of all well the other word the the, the dominant word that gets translated hell is gehenna but christ picks up that word from jeremiah the valley of the sons of hinnom was was the valley south of jerusalem where the with the siege of Jerusalem by Babylon and later by Rome, there were so many dead bodies from the siege of Jerusalem that they couldn't even bury them, which for Jews is awful, you know, to have to, to have to burn them somewhere. And, and so this becomes an image. Well, initially it's an image of destruction. So whether it's destruction now or destruction later. Of course, Jesus wants to save us from destruction. Right. And it's a so the the valley south of Jerusalem becomes a metaphor for the destructive consequences of my defiance. And Jesus has come to rescue us from that. And so this is and and we, could those destructive consequences uh, continue into the next life? Sure. So what do you do about it? Well, we turn to Jesus. Here's the problem. And so my second point would be this. We used hell to try to motivate people into turning to Jesus. My vision of hell is not saying there's no such thing as destruction or, um, in, and it's certainly not this, that we don't need to turn to Jesus. Of course we do, but, and as we do, we experience times of refreshing, but, um, I firmly believe that turning to Jesus must be a willing faith response. Now, when I see a hostage video with a gun to somebody's head, confessing whatever they've been told to confess, praying that they won't get their heads cut off, would you call that a willing faith response? So I just want to say that if, if I put the gun of eternal conscious torment to your head, and I say, this is going to go off unless you pray the sinner's prayer. You'll you may say the sinner's prayer, but that's you have not you have not given a willing faith response. That's a that's a ultimatum. Right. That yeah, yeah, yeah. And so i I would be I would agree with evangelists who want to see people turn to Jesus so that they can. Um, come out from under the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of light. But if I throw in a threat of hell into that, I have compromised their faith response. Wow. And and that's very serious. And I see that all the time now, because let's say in a 150 years ago, if you preached hellfire and brimstone, people may turn to Christ. Well, now they turn away from him if you do that. Yeah, absolutely. Right, so we're actually driving people. If if you actually believed in hell as the eternal conscious torment, then shame on you for driving them there with your preaching of hell of hellfire. Right, right, right. Um, and so I just think we have much better news than that. It's, it's, anyway, back to you. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I, and uh,
0: the the ironic thing to me about this whole thing, this is a little bit off topic, but the ironic thing to me about this is, I'm not sure and I, and I, I started to think about this after I read David Bentley Hart's book. Yep. I'm not sure that we actually even really believe what we claim to believe about hell. Right. Because, we
1: believe that we believe it. <laughs>
0: because, it, because it, And he makes this point, and he says it way stronger and punchier than I could ever get away with saying anything. Um, if we really did believe what we believe about hell, then, then we are, most of us are actually really awful people because we don't tell, we don't do much about it. Right. We, we do little things here or there. I mean, I, you've been a pastor, I've been a pastor. The amount of arm twisting pastors typically have to do to try and encourage people to bring someone to church or evangelize their friends or do anything public nowadays about their, about their faith is just an indictment that I do we, I don't actually think we even really believe what we claim to believe about hell. And if we really did believe it, and then we go on living as if it doesn't exist and we just live our normal life, then don't we kind of deserve to go there for not doing anything about it? I mean, isn't that the, isn't that the irony in that?
1: Am I missing something? Sure. Their blood would be on your hands. And, you know, my dad is an exception to this because he doesn't threaten anyone with eternal hell, but he really believes they're going there. So he's actually motivated to share good news with everybody he meets. Like you can't go, you couldn't give him a haircut without hearing about the gospel. He's one of those guys. He's one of those guys. And, and in fact, you know, then he, he does it in a winsome, like old man kind of way that, you know, that, the hairdresser is like crying at the end and say, sure. yes, I want Jesus. I mean, so he's a rare exception because otherwise, what do people actually do? Well, we watch a football game. If you really believed your next door neighbor was going to hell for billions upon billions of years and it's only just beginning and that flames would lick their skin for all eternity, how dare you take a night off to watch football? How dare you waste a dollar to go on holiday? But you know what? Maybe- but- and truly, like, dude. how
0: dare you? I mean, that, I mean, no hyperbole yeah. there.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, uh, the downside of that is it's a very deep hypocrisy. The upside of it is maybe we're sane enough not to live that way. Yeah, yeah. Because sure. <laughs> I- intuitively, the spirit just would go, "Come on, guys. Yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. Take yeah. a night off here." So, yeah, you're right. It's we don't do we really believe it? Well, we only really believe it when we're trying to get our pastor to sign off on a doctrinal statement before we fire him, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, uh, but it's it's hideous. It's it's now. And so Chris Green, I I love that he had the guts to come right out and say it is high time that we called eternal conscious torment, the heresy for what it is. It is a it is a slander of love and goodness. Yeah, yeah. and uh, you know what? And it's it's shifting fast now. I'm I'm not too worried. I think among thinking people who love the Lord, um, you know, we're in the last generation or two of of infernalism. It, it's pretty much done. The bigger problem now is those who've been so wounded by it that want have nothing want want nothing to do with Jesus. Yeah. So I'm like, oh my goodness. Of course, all you people who hate this thing because of the hell thing, you're right. But like, don't, don't throw away Jesus with it. You know? Yeah. yeah. And that's my urgency these days. And here's how I do it. I'll say, look, this is a real story. A woman named Steph, she came and she's wondering what I was up to. And I'm like, well, I'm writing a book on hell. This is back in 2009. I actually wrote it and she gave me a funny look. No, she is not a believer. Um, But the funny look was almost like she was disgusted that I would write such a book. So I said this right away to her. I said, um, oh, it's not what you think. Um, I'm not talking about those kinds of hell where uh, you would be threatened with a lake of fire. You know, that's so. And then she fills in the blank. She goes medieval. And I'm like, exactly. That's so medieval. I said, what I'm talking about is how Jesus thinks of it, where um, he knows we're already going through hell. And, and he just wants it. He, he wants to help us find life instead of the hell we're going through. And she goes, I know exactly what you mean. So, okay. All her resistance is gone. God. I'm like, tell me about your hell. And then she just gives me this full confession of how hard life is and depression she's going with through and the way she's, she's numbing the depression in self-harming ways. I'm like, I didn't even ask her for that. Well, I guess I did. I, she wanted to tell me about what hell is and I'm like, okay. So in light of that, what if you knew, what if you could meet a God who loves you and just, and just wants to hold you and make that better? So like, oh yeah, I'd love that. I'm like, well, let's do it now. And so she, boom, in two minutes, she's in the arms of Jesus. So you got, you got some of that, your dad's anointing on you then a little bit. You got some I of guess. that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm pretty mild compared to her, but it, it, <laughs> or to him, but, but there's an example, right? Where yeah. yeah. The very thing that drove her away, when you reframe hell as a real experience of perishing, as John 3 does, that Jesus wants to come and bring life and restoration to, it's like, well, then it might even sound like good news. Who knew? Right?
0: Oh, no, yeah, right, right. And for me, this whole conversation really, for me, this conversation actually started with when I started to think about the cross and the crucifixion yeah and when i started to i I think they're just so tight in most people's minds they're so tightly related And, and in some in some circles in some of the ones i grew up in you will hear people actually preach g you know god poured out his wrath on jesus so we didn't have to on you but if you refuse jesus that wrath is still waiting for you in hell i mean that's that's the I literally the, the preached logic. that.
1: Yeah. In about yeah. 1988, I was preaching that just exactly how you said it. And here's your options, right? Yeah. God yeah. pours out his wrath in Jesus or he pours it out on you. Pick.
0: Pick. Right. Right. I mean, that's it's kind of foolish to, yeah. to even frame it in that way. But once you, to me, once I started to rethink and, and go back into the scriptures and say, okay, how, how did the scriptures talk about the crucifixion? It led me. Yeah. It led me both backwards into uh, the Old Testament and trying to wrestle with some of the the images of, of kind of angry, wrathful God there that a lot of people, uh, you know, are scared of and get um, don't know what to do with. And then it led me forward to think about the age to come. So okay, well, if because my logic was this: this is how I grew up was Old Testament God was angry and wrathful and basically love to send people to hell. Then Jesus came. Jesus was basically the opposite. He wanted to rescue everybody from hell and he was merciful, kind, loving and forgiving. And we're supposed to kind of keep going on his plane now, but in the end, he's going to go back to kind of old Testament way and he's going to come back and he's going to be angry and vengeful and he's going to throw all the people who rejected him, which in my mind was, you know, 95% of human history and he's going to throw them into like a fire and torment them forever. And so it was this, I had this weird, and I think, I think a lot of people honestly do have this weird kind of like um, image of God that switches between kind of angry God and nice Jesus. And what I would, What I'd love to get your thoughts on, because you wrote one of your other books that was so helpful to me is a more Christ-like God, is how all of this really ties into, and even the conversation of hell, is really a conversation about who is God and what is God like, and how that's revealed on the cross. And as soon as we, and I think you even have a chapter in there called "Unwrathing the Cross, if I remember right. Um, And um, I I could be remembering that wrong, but talk to us a little about that as we kind of start to land the plane here a little bit.
1: Sure. Here's the, here is the new Testament witness that to know God, you look at Jesus to see Jesus is to see the father. He is the radiance of God. He is the exact image and likeness of God. He is in him, all the fullness of the Godhead dwelled bodily, all the fullness. Jesus is not a part of God or a face of God, uh, you know, where there might be some other, parts of God in the background that are, you know, no, to the, uh, to be Christian is to look at Jesus Christ crucified and risen as the image of God. Um, uh, No one has seen God in all his glory, in all his fullness um, except Jesus Christ, God, the only son who's in the bosom of the father, he has made him known. So you to be Christian is to start there. And so the image of God is revealed in Christ, crucified and risen without remainder. In other words, I mean, there's nothing else we know about God like outside of that or that wouldn't align with that. That means then we read from the end. This is exactly what Jesus says on the road to Emmaus, that Moses and the prophets and all of scriptures were testifying concerning me that I must um, uh, suffer and... and and die and to enter my glory and he
0: even he even goes so far as to to rebuke them and say shouldn't you have if you read them rightly shouldn't you have understood that that was what was going to happen why are you so bent out of shape if you would have read them the way that they are meant to be read i'm obviously paraphrasing here yeah you should have expected the messiah to suffer and to be crucified and then to raise again. Why are you, why are you surprised? Oh, you of little
1: faith. Did you not read? Yeah. The thing is they couldn't until he unsealed it. So in in, in this, in this sense, uh, it is his death and resurrection that unseals the scriptures. So he reveals the scriptures as revealing him and they just can't get it until, until, until he's risen. And then, Okay, now we go back. So I would say um, what we discover from the cross about God, this is an orthodox statement. uh, There is no retribution in the nature of God. The cross reveals that. We shouldn't be looking for the wrath of God poured out on Jesus there. What we're seeing is in the face of human wrath, God responds with forgiveness, self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love. That's what the cross means. Now, if that, and that's what God is. So if God is, is that, now we have to go back and say, well, how will we read the, the Hebrew scriptures? Um, we won't read them as a revelation of God apart from the crucified and risen one. We will read them to see how the scriptures prefigure his suffering, prefigure his betrayal, prefigure his resurrection and his life and all of that and anything that doesn't reveal that reveals us in other words the nasty pictures of god are not pictures of god at all they're pictures of our nastiness being projected onto god and that christ unveils that too so there's this idea that um let's say the genocidal god is we don't get rid of that from our bible we because the genocidal god pictures are a mirror that we're to hold up to see how as cautionary tales about how we're still doing that foolish thing so yeah
0: yeah no no for sure and and we it goes back to the us versus them thing that you had talked about earlier and that's i think at the core of that and we i mean especially us here in america i mean that's quite literally what we did is we took those those passages and read ourselves into a particular character as kind of a new Israel into those stories in order to commit hellish acts that are still Absolutely. with us today. I mean, I've been yep. I've been to, when I was a, a pastor, I was pastoring college students, and every spring break, we would go uh, on this trip to a, a reservation in Montana. And yep. we'd spend a week there with a, a pastor, and we did this in partnership with a a Lutheran church, uh, in our city. And, um, I mean, you just step foot on those uh, on a reservation. It is to bring it into this conversation. It's, it's, it's hell on earth in a lot of respects. It's, yep. you, you don't feel like you are in, you know, America anymore. The, the amount of suffering and poverty and abuse and addiction, um, that is, you just, it's crazy. And that's all, because of exactly what you're talking about, I mean, that in the name of Jesus. In the name you know, of Jesus. I mean, I'm, I'm oversimplifying the history a little bit, but this, I mean, this is that there's actually uh, the reservation that we'd go to uh, is where Custard's last stand was, and so we always take the take the group to see the you know the memorial and all that, take the little tour on on our day off, yeah. and there is a plaque there. Uh, I I took a picture of it and have switched phones so many times I've lost it, but of a statement uh, from Ulysses S. Grant. And in the statement, yep. and it's on on the plaque in in the memorial to Custer's last name, that literally says, we were here as a new Israel to uh, expand God's kingdom and bring these people to Jesus. I mean, this was in, in their mind, or at least it was in their rhetoric, um, and it created a hell on earth for generations to come.
1: Yeah, so you can see the misuse there here's the thing in the Septuagint, the Greek translation, you know, Joshua is literally, that's the name Jesus. (laughs) So we have an old Testament book in Greek called Jesus. We, we took it and used it in Jesus name to commit atrocities as if the conquest narratives were a mandate for us. When in fact, even the author of Joshua is doing a critique of redemptive violence. Like the book, it's it, the book was never a promotion right. of that stuff, right? But then to read the Old Testament without Jesus as your sponsor is to miss the whole thing that the conquest narratives, which by the way, probably historically never happened, um, are prefigure Christ's imperfectly prefigure Christ's conquest of death in Hades, where not one person has to die for the world to be made right other than God himself, you know? So we really botched it up um, by, by not starting with Jesus.
0: Yeah. And I, and I mean, another way that you could easily look at it too is Jesus is the new Joshua who doesn't lead the conquest of violence, but who allows his enemies to lead a conquest of violence against him. And in doing so overthrows the whole system i mean there's a way in which i think you can you can read those scriptures in in light of jesus and actually find christ in the canaanites more than you yeah. can in israel as the one who is suffering with his enemies um in order to yeah, overcome certainly death and-
1: that's exactly right well and think of it this way and you'll find the canaanites in christ specifically uh rahab is his blood relative her, her blood is flowing through the veins of Christ. Right? Yes. So. Right.
0: Yeah. 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 And, <laughs> and the, and the gospel writers are they're They're aware of that and put, I can't remember which one it is. I think it's Luke, but I can't, I could be wrong.
1: Matt, uh, Matthew. Matthew. Has, okay. Has okay. Her in the Puts her genealogy. in there
0: and the, it is, yep. it is on purpose and he is doing something there other than just tracing lineage. Um, yeah. 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 So We'll end here. This will be last last question. How how do we? What's a what's a step one moving forward? Someone who is starting to maybe rethink, or this is a new conversation. Like okay, I didn't even know that there was four different words translated. Hell, uh, we didn't even get really get into much of the Gehenna tradition, and and we touched on it a, a little bit, but that's largely the vein in which jesus is operating which is why i think in matthew 16 when they when he says who do people say that i am one of the answers is they they think you're jeremiah because he's picking picking up on on jeremiah's some of his prophetic tradition um but someone who's new to that conversation or or the idea of hell is real so just to be clear we're not saying hell is not real Oh, it's more
1: real than we thought.
0: Yes, absolutely. That's exactly what we're saying. Just like when when we've used the word image or metaphor. I know sometimes the moment you use that language, people just immediately start saying, oh, you're bending it so you can make it say whatever you want or making it fluffy and not real. It's like, no, no, no. If you understand, you know they. I want to read the Bible literally is what they always say, which is a misuse of the word literal. Yep. Um. Yep. Anyway, but we are. We're not saying that hell is not real, and we're not saying that it's not just some ethereal metaphor that doesn't mean anything. It's very real. It's uh, and the metaphors actually speak to the realness of it, to yep. the concreteness of it. It's just much more, it's much bigger, more complicated, um, more sophisticated uh, than we had thought. And, and to reduce it down to one image in at the end of Revelation, this lake of fire um, is just to do a massive disservice. So what, with all that kind of mind, someone who's trying to maybe early on in their journey, think through some of this uh, finish this off with what would be step one besides going to read your, your book, what would be, what would be step one for uh, for you to encourage somebody on their journey?
1: Um, maybe you could start with an article I wrote. And so would just uh, in, I don't know if you'll have this in liner notes, but people can just yeah, remember. I can. It. Just yep. Yeah. Google let's talk about hell better. Jerzak, you know, and and what that will do, I think, is it, it'll open a door to, to the discussion itself, and alleviate some of the fears. But specifically, it will. It, I am I am saying that there are so many images and words and pictures of hell in the Bible. Um, if you want to start with one, I would I I would start in John chapter three, because now now we're seeing the, the, the present tense reality of perishing in this world and in our lives that people do need saving from and that hell can, hell is a metaphor for that. And there, and that we're not talking about just like life beyond the grave now. So, so I think that if we, if we want to start with perishing and eternal life as a, existential reality in this world, the people on your cul de sac or in the desert in Iraq there, you know. Um, and how Jesus comes into that as as the rescuer, not the um threatener that might help. And so uh, this I, I think a Johannine picture is the place to start these days. And I'll just say as a footnote to that, because he's already, he's already had another generation to pray about it and listen to God about it and to articulate the best ways to, to, to talk about it. Um, long after Matthew and Paul and these other guys are dead.
0: Yeah. And, and the early church called him the theologian yep. for, for, a, a, a good, a good reason. Um, Brad, thank you so much uh, for this. This was a lot of fun. There are a million different ways that, that, uh, you know, people can, can go on this and, and it's well worth people's time to, I I think this is an important issue. Um, And and I, I do sense a same and maybe this is just me becoming aware of it, but I don't think so. I think there is this, a wind shifting, if I can, use that language uh, around this topic and people are starting to um i think just ask some good questions and i would just say i for me this was this was a really scary thing which is kind of ironic a scary thing to even start rethinking um, because of the the baggage that comes along with it the accusations that people will lob your way You know, some people will just they'll shut it down immediately. And for anybody who's listening to this or um, thinking this, I would say it's a worthwhile journey. And I'm I'm thankful that I've partaken it, and I know you are. And I'm thankful for your book that you've contributed to to help people through this. And I I would say for anyone who is wants to do a study on on hell, um, Brad, your book "Her Gates Will Never Be Shut" is it's very accessible. It's very readable, but it's, it takes you in depth in the scriptures. You go through every nitty gritty detail, early church history, um, the crucifixion into the book of revelation, old Testament, the prophets. I mean uh, you, you go everywhere and it's um, it, it's a really, really helpful resource. And so I would, I would, point people, point people there for sure. Thank you. Yeah. And I'll leave a link to that um, in the, in the show notes as well. So uh You've got other things to do other than talk about hell to with, with a random stranger that you just met an hour and a half ago, uh, but I really do appreciate the time, and uh, I'd love to have you on again sometime in the future, and uh, would love to talk uh, crucifixion, crucifixion stuff with you, because um, that's the other area, like we said here, related to this that I know you've done a lot of work and have been very uh, very influential in my life uh, in thinking around those things. So I'd love to have that conversation with you too sometime in the future. You bet. Cool. All right. Thanks, Brad. Keep up have, the good work. Yep. Thank you so much. Have a good day. You too. Bye.